Hello to our loyal listeners. We are so proud and excited and honored to have been nominated by the Willamette Week as the best podcast in Portland. It would mean so much to us if you could take a moment of your time to click the show notes in the episode you're listening to right now. And there's a link right there. Click on that. You can go give us a vote. We would be so appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. There are nearly 20,000 murders annually in the United States. Perhaps it's the weather, but the Pacific Northwest has become the notorious home of serial killers and bizarre crimes. We're here to discuss those murders, to try to understand the motives, respect and remember the victims, and explore the humanity of it all. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. And And this this is Murder in in the the Rain. In 1986, two young girls, both blonde, blue-eyed, and riding bikes, went missing five months apart. Their bodies were found in local parks, having been sexually assaulted and then murdered. The city of Tacoma, Washington, was sure that there was yet another serial killer on the loose, a monster who targeted pubescent girls. Michelle Welsh, a bespectacled girl with almond-shaped blue eyes, was 12 years old the day she went missing. About 10 a.m. March 26, 1986, Michelle took her two younger sisters to Puget Park to play. This was just before their piano lesson, which happened to take place just across the street. Before lunchtime, the girls realized they forgot to bring their packed lunches, so Michelle decided to ride her bike home, pick up the sandwiches, and bring them back for her sisters. While she was at home getting the lunches, her younger sisters walked down the road to use the bathroom of a local business. This was kind of far, so they expected to find their sister back in the park when they returned. When they got there, though, all they saw was Michelle's bike locked up and their lunches on the picnic table. No Michelle. Like many siblings and families, they had a unique call that they would use to signal each other when they were looking for them. The little girls called out to Michelle, Doo! There was no response. The girls knew something wasn't right, so they called their mom, Barbara. Police arrived on scene shortly after 3 p.m. to begin the search. They began canvassing the area and speaking with potential witnesses. One witness claimed to have spotted her around 1.30 speaking to an unidentified man. This was the last recorded sighting of young Michelle. The man was noted as being possibly Hispanic, 25 to 35 5'8", with black hair and light-colored clothing. A 13-year-old classmate of Michelle's also reported to police that she saw a man underneath the Proctor Bridge, which was located inside the park, and that he kept looking over at the girls frequently and gave her the heebie-jeebies. She described him as white, 5'9", in his mid-20s, and wearing a Canadian tuxedo. Okay, she said jeans and a jean jacket. But, you know, that's the official <laughs> Same <term>. thing. <laughs> Soon it was dark and police knew it was time to call in search and rescue. And to assist in this, they actually brought a group of trained search dogs as well. One dog led police to Michelle's body. They found her in a makeshift fire pit in a gulch just after 11 p.m. Oh, my gosh. That was really. It was fast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So she had been beaten, sexually assaulted, She had a knife wound at her throat. And in early reports, they said that the cut to the neck was actually her cause of death. But it was later determined that her cause of death was the blunt force trauma to her head from the beating. 
Michelle's body was swabbed and DNA from the killer was collected, even though at the time there wasn't a whole lot they could do with DNA. Neither of the men who were witnessed in the park were ever confirmed as being located by the police. However, sketches were made up and circulated and tips began pouring in. Also, how hard is it? Like, it's hard enough to get a witness that's going to be accurate, let alone these children that are in a park. So it's like, probably... I know, you ignore kids all the time, right? Right, (laughs) exactly. And it's like, you... These are, they're probably talking about the same person, but it's like, yeah, I think he was Hispanic and this tall. And yeah, he was probably I this think, old. I'm like, I think some of the people there were regulars, right. but Michelle was pretty well known and a lot of her classmates were there. So maybe it was a little more reliable. On- well, I just mean as far as the men go, you know, cause like yeah, when you're but a wouldn't kid. Wouldn't it weird you out if you're 13 and you see your 13 year old friend talking to some person you've never seen? You might actually pay attention. True. But just perception too. I remember being 13 being like, I think they're 40. Because oh, for they're, sure. They're yeah. older than me. So I would they're never definitely believe a kid 40. that's his mid-20s. Yeah. Chloe thinks I'm 20 or she did for a while. Right. And like 5'9". I'm like, Or she'll no. be like, my teacher's the same age as you and you meet them when they're 20 years older. <laughs> Cool, thanks. Yeah, so that's a little not helpful, but at least there's something out there. It is, but they did get a tip that was pretty important that uh, later they realized was important. At the time, it was just another tip. But someone had called in a man who claimed to have seen one of the men in the sketches at another park. So a park was nearby, but it was actually called Point Defiance Park. So it matches up. It's a good, good direction. Well, it was in Puget Park is when it happened, and he's saying in another park. Well, yeah, but park to park, you know. Five months later, another young girl went missing in Point Defiance Park, just a little over three miles away from where Michelle was found. Jennifer Bastian, who went by Jenny, was 13 years old and training for a YMCA bike tour of Lopez Island. Jenny planned a bike ride with a friend on her brand new Schwinn bike, but her friend backed out. Since the bike tour was so important to Jenny, she wanted to make sure she did a good job in the race. She decided to go ahead and train without her friend. She took her bike out at 2.30 p.m. on August 4th, 1986. Her plan was to ride the 30 blocks from her house to Point Defiance Park, where she could do the five-mile drive, a popular paved path that looped through the park. She had permission to do this ride, but she was expected home at 6.30 p.m. as per the note she left her mom. Hours past the time she was expected home, her father called her mother, who worked the late shift, to let her know that Jenny had never come home. They alerted the police, and a search kicked off. Late that night, police asked Jenny's parents for a piece of her clothing. Their search was not successful, and they decided to bring in scent dogs to help. For three days, police closed the Point Defiance Park to do a thorough search for young Jenny. Hundreds of people joined together to scour the park, and she was not located. Was Jenny kidnapped? Was she hurt? Was she lost? For weeks, Jenny's family agonized as they ran through every nightmare scenario in their minds. But then, the news no parent wants to receive. Finally, after three weeks, a couple of joggers discovered Jenny's body. Her and her bike were well hidden in the brush near Five Mile Drive. She had been raped and strangled to death. The police located DNA in the crotch of the swimsuit she had been wearing, which was now found pulled around her ankles. Due to the eerie similarities of both of these cases, police were quick to determine there was a serial killer on their hands. This, of course, sent the city into a frenzy. Families were hesitant to let kids play outside or walk to school, fearing that any given moment one of them could be plucked up, raped, and murdered. 
Over the years, there have been many suspects. In fact, there were 2,300 names in the case files for these two little girls. Wow. That's what happens when you have a case that's been open for 30 years. 30 years in the hunt for these little girls yielded little more than uncovering some regular Joes, some perverts, and some more murderers, just not the ones that committed these crimes. So who are the suspects? Let's talk about a couple of these gems that stand out. We're not going through all 2,000? No, I figured maybe we'd just like pull a couple out. Oh, that seems We fair. could do some, some Patreon episodes <laughs> of the rest of them. Number 1,322. All right, so suspect number one who looks like a possibility, David Fisher. On December 6th, 1989, a special broadcast played on TV outlining the case of Michelle and, Je- and Jenny. So after the broadcast, a man named David Fisher was arrested. And let me tell you about this guy because he's a real piece of work. So at 29 years old, he worked at a Tacoma pet store. This is in 1970. <laughs> In June, Laura Burbank began visiting the store regularly, and the two struck up a friendship. Only one problem. Laura was 13. This wasn't strange for David, though, because he was actually married to a 16-year-old girl who was pregnant with their first child. Let that sink in. Oh, 1970, 1970. Washington. He's 29 and she's 16 and he's now striking up a friendship with a 13 year old. (laughs) I know. It's gross. So Laura would visit the store all the time. She was very into animals and some witnesses claim that she had told them that this guy was going to teach her how to train monkeys. That was like his his in with her is you come to the store. I'll teach you how to do this. Man, the 70s were a wild time. (laughs) What? monkeys <laughs> married to wives. children so on june 30th laura had plans to go to a park with her sister and her friend however the plans didn't work out and she decided to just go alone when she didn't return home her father went looking for her and then alerted police a witness in the park mentioned having seen a pet store van in the park at the time of the disappearance we got a park prowler so Fisher was questioned. He, of course, denied being friends with Laura, and he claimed that at the time that the pet van was located or noticed in the park, he was actually home with his wife, and it couldn't have been him. But then David's wife actually went into the police station. So she said that late one night, she wasn't sure exactly what day, but late one night, he demanded that she would wash his jeans. They were really, really dirty. And she thought this was abnormal because he was known for being a super neat dresser. In the entire time they'd been together, he was never considered dirty or disheveled. So it stood out to her. And then two weeks after the disappearance, she found a pair of female underwear in his stuff. So it was in his belongings. Um, And when she told police this, they automatically were thinking trophy. He's keeping something about his crime. And you have your 16-year-old wife doing your laundry late at night who's pregnant. Ugh, this guy. Right. All right. So three months later, after the disappearance, Laura's body was discovered by a group of kids playing in the woods. She had been sexually molested and murdered by blunt force trauma. So, again, to the head. Yep. Police decided to go ahead and arrest David, but he fled. So about eight days later, he actually surrendered, and he was hoping that they would be lenient with him and let him be present for the birth of his first child. But of course, the police were like, no, No. we're going to go ahead and arrest you. 
since the evidence was all circumstantial, they decided the best case of action was to do to do a plea deal. So he actually did pled second degree murder, guilty to second degree murder, and then he went to prison. So in prison, he was a model of good behavior. And because of this, they assigned him to their minimum security honor farm. So they're basically just out in the farm like a, a regular worker. There's not really right. Re- a fence or restrictive anything. environment. Exactly. So he's like, cool, I'm leaving. <laughs> so he's been there for four Bye, years. He I'm decides good. I'm leaving. And it was hours before anyone noticed. They didn't notice till bedtime. So he's got significant amount of hours ahead of them and they can't find him so he's basically gone no one sees him again until the broadcast of michelle and jenny's case Uh, a neighbor i think somebody sent a tip in and said hey i know this guy and they apprehended him in canada in 1990 and his new family he had a wife and kids they had no idea that he wasn't who. so he he had just abandoned the 16 year old yep and the baby so, so he's got a child somewhere. Yeah. And also this whole idea of like, they're a model prisoner. They're there for a reason, friend. And it's, it, yeah, it's like, that's not the environment that they're not good in. I know. That's like when people are like, no, this person's not racist. They have black friends. It's like serial killers have people around them that aren't dead. Like, yeah, just because you're good in prison, I guess if he was in a park around kids, he probably would be. Not such a good model. So suspect number one sounds pretty good. I yeah, mean, I'll put my money on that one. All right. Okay. So number two, Guy Rasmussen. 3 p.m. July 4th, 1996, nine-year-old Cynthia Allinger, who goes by Cindy, told her mom she was going to walk down the road to go to her friend's house, which was just a few houses away. She never made it to her friend's house. So at 11 p.m. when Cindy's mom realized it, uh, her mom's name is Rhonda Plank, she called police to report her missing. And then while she's on the call with the police, she makes a comment that she thinks a guy named Guy, a guy guy named Guy, a guy named Guy Rasmussen did it, that he had something to do with it, which seems a little weird for her to know that. But what had happened was the neighbor, I, I don't know if it's the neighbor her daughter was planning to go to or another one, said she had seen her daughter earlier that day holding hands with this guy. Okay. And how was he known? He was in the neighborhood. So he was oh, someone, and I'll, okay. I'll get to that, but he, okay. you know, he lived in the area. So Guy Rasmussen is actually a convicted sex offender. He has multiple records against him, one for the rape of a 15-year-old and another for a 10-year-old. The local kids in the neighborhood all called him Raz. So isn't that sweet? A local pedophile has a nickname with the kids. Mm. And remember, you can always go to crimewatch.com. <laughs> Check your neighborhood. <laughs> anyway, so he he was actually a former neighbor that he moved to a trailer still within the vicinity of the neighborhood, but he's not like a neighbor right, right. to them okay. anymore. So people knew who he was. They recognized him. All razzmatazz. And I mean, you can't miss that mullet, I'm telling you. Oh. So two weeks after her disappearance, her body was found rolled in a carpet not far from her house. She had suffered pretty significantly, so I'm going to have to say trigger warning here, just in in case if you want to fast forward. The medical examiner noted that she had been burned with cigarettes and beaten in the face so badly that it resulted in a broken jaw. She then had her underwear stuffed down her throat to gag her, and she ended up dying uh, after being raped or during by being strangled. 
multiple witnesses had seen Rasmussen with Cindy. So it wasn't just the one neighbor. Multiple people came forward in different parts of the neighborhood claiming that they saw him holding hands, kind of pulling her along with him. Not not forceful. Right, but just, we're going this way. Exactly. And she was how old? I'm sorry. Nine. When police investigated Rasmussen, they found that he had clothing in his home that had Cindy's DNA on it. So they were able to very quickly match Mm -hmm. what they found on his clothing to her body since they had it in the morgue. He was ultimately charged with rape and murder in the first degree. The jury was split on the death penalty, so he ended up just going to prison with a life sentence, no parole. So he's out there still. And in 2014, he actually is working with lawyers to try and get the DNA retested, working with... um, Innocence Project? Innocence Project, yeah. Really? Because, I mean, Washington has one of the highest rates of exoneration for DNA retesting. Right. So he was trying to get on that train. But lo and behold, later that year, he stepped back and pulled it because prosecution was like, go ahead. I'm not going to stop you. We know our case is solid. We stand behind everything. There's no circumstantial evidence here. And Innocence Project is really thorough about what cases they take and when they do yeah, it. Yeah, so like, it may just not have gone anywhere much, yeah. and he stopped, but he was trying to work with them on that. Wow, nice try, scumbag. <laughs> so here's the thing about these two guys. They look perfect on paper for these murders, but it wasn't them. They were never arrested and charged really? in the end. They were um, basically determined to have not been possibly the suspect yeah i wouldn't put it on the second on. guy because it doesn't match up like the torture and yeah that's car- pretty like dark. it doesn't the first guy though the first guy is like, like checking it. all the boxes but it is also convenient the blunt force trauma is like pretty easy to do with like a tree branch or a rock or your fists they didn't get very far they looked into a lot of suspects but the cases remained open for 30 years <laughs> In 2011, Tacoma created a cold case unit to focus on over 150 local cases. The cases of Michelle and Jenny were taken on by this team. So by this time, we're coming into a new era, an exciting time for cold cases because we've progressed so much with the science Mm -hmm. of DNA testing. So we're lucky because the DNA collection was happening even before they knew that we were going to progress this much. It's like somebody innovative enough to like realize this is the future. Let's collect it, get a lot of swabs. So they have a lot of DNA. So it's like a perfect fit to go back and check these cases. Because now we're seeing the science being able to take really small samples and learn so much from them. So they're, you know, one little DNA goes a long way these days. Mm -hmm. I'm also fascinated with, on the flip side, how the science is progressing so much. It's canceling out this like debunked science, you know, fire science is being questioned now. Right. Biting. Because they realize how thorough they can be. Right. Definitely. So the young people that were children when this case happened are now grown up. And some of them have actually gone into law enforcement because of these cases. And one of these people is Detective Lindsay Wade. So she's actually from Tacoma. She knew about this case. She read a book in college about Ted Bundy and decided you know, I want to do this. I want to solve these cases. So she worked her way up through the ranks, became a detective. And in 2013, she joined Detective Jean Miller on the Tacoma cold case unit. So they were leading it together. They decided, you know, let's get our fresh eyes on this case. Where do we start? DNA. Let's start there. So Michelle's case had plenty of DNA. It was found all over her body. So and since she was found within 
the same day, it's like a perfect case for DNA because it was untouched. When they sent it to the lab for analysis, it did not have a matching CODIS, but now they at least have a profile to work with. Mm -hmm. So they can put it in and now any other DNA that they come through CODIS, it would match to her case. And I would imagine they could at least narrow down, say it's this genetic makeup and so yeah, they had they had eyes, a profile. Hair, all, yeah. Absolutely. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now Jenny's case was a little bit harder because as you remember, she was it, she was found three weeks. So she was right. significantly decomposed, which isn't so great for DNA. Thanks to some advice from the Center of Missing and Exploited Children, Wade and Miller decided to check the swimsuit again for DNA and they were able to pull a viable a viable swab for testing. So they weren't totally out of luck there. As true crime fans across the world know, fans like us, DNA testing is a game changer. You can learn some very interesting things, and this case was no different. So when the samples from both cases were compared, police were shocked to find out that the DNA samples did not match. No. They were not one killer, as everyone expected for decades that's what they thought that's what they were looking for there were in fact two totally different profiles two different murderers both focusing on children that is shocking i know in 2014 detective wade was now leading the cold case unit and she decided to consult with colleen fitzpatrick this is a doctor who is an expert in forensic genealogy which is really hip these days right we've heard about it with the golden state killer mm -hmm. um bearbrook covers it so it's a, a kind of a new way that we're using dna to find mainly victims locating um like missing children like if you find a kid and you have no idea who they are you can look them up using forensic genealogy so forensic genealogy is the use of dna that has been submitted by civilians to public databases so we know these like 23andme i did one last right, year ancestry.com yeah you spit into a vial you send it in and then you can see all your cousins she is proposing let's use this to try to narrow down who these people are which is kind of a there's a debate going on with it, but she said, I don't know if I trust it, but why not give it a try? We have 2,300 people, right. so let's at least try to narrow it down. So what Fitzpatrick did was compare the DNA they had with all the DNA in the public databases that she could have access to, and they narrowed it down. So soon they found a name that stood out, and the name was Washburn. So it's weird that it stood out because it was already in the case file, but not as a suspect. This was a witness, a witness in Michelle's case. If you recall, I mentioned a witness who had called police to say someone in Point Defiance Park looked an awful lot like the sketch from Puget Park in Michelle's right. case. But now Dr. Fitzpatrick is saying the DNA from Jenny's case matches someone from the family Washburn, who was the witness in Michelle's case. What? Simultaneously to working with the forensic genealogist, the DNA from each case was sent to a company called Parabon. That's another company that's pretty widely recognized these days because they're helping in a lot of these cases. So what they were doing was helping to build a profile of the killers using DNA. And they were looking for markers on hair color, eye color, skin tone, body type. And then they could develop a computer generated image of the suspect. And in 2016, Tacoma police told the public, hey, it's not one killer. We have two. So that was mind blowing for a lot of people. And then they now had the computer images to show the differences between the two men. 
Detective Wade went back out to look at high-priority suspects. So these were mainly men who had backgrounds in pedophilia and violence. Thought that's the quickest way to kind of narrow down. Mm -hmm. Because even though they have a possible suspect, they're still looking for another case entirely. They have no leads there yet. They go through this list looking at DNA to eliminate suspects. For months they're doing this. So they're sending DNA in batches of 20 to be tested. Just going through this list of 2,300 people Mm. starting with these predators. Right. So over and over to a year later, Wade's like, I'm going to retire, which is crazy because she's not that much older than us. But she's like, I'm going to retire. I'm This is terrible. I've done what, everything I can. So she puts in the final batch, 18 people, and retires. 25 days into retirement, she gets a phone call from her replacement to say, hey, we got a match. And his name is Robert Washburn. Robert Washburn, the man who had called for the tip in Michelle's case, was at the end of the long list because he was not a high priority. He had no record whatsoever. But he's now identified as the primary suspect in a rape and murder case. He's living in the Midwest, and the police contacted him to get his DNA, and he offered it. So he knew they were, like, eliminating him. Onto him, him. right. No, he just thought, oh, I'm eliminating myself from this 2,000 people. They're never going to catch me. If he sends it in, bing, bang, boom, they have a match. So now her case is closed. Jenny's case is solved. We know who it is. Court system takes over. But we still have Michelle's case. And And did they ever figure out, like, in your research, did they ever say, like, anything he said as to why he called in? We'll talk about it a little later, actually. Okay. Um, That's a big question I think a lot of people had on their mind. So we still have Michelle's case open. In 2018, police went to Parabon again to try to get more help with Michelle Welsh's case. By looking for DNA that was publicly available, they were able to match with family members in the system. So they, from all of the thousands of people in there, were able to to narrow down to two brothers. And from there, they're like, let's just follow them around and get some DNA. Because we don't have 2,000 we're going through now. We just have these two people. This is really easy. So the police followed him around, and one of the brothers was at a restaurant. So the cop just went in and got a napkin from his plate after the waitress took it. And uh, it was a match. So then they pulled him over for traffic violation and arrested him, which was probably a shock for him. Right. He's, I don't think he had any clue. People will, like, say these two guys are... They just look like an old grandpa, like someone who just would never hurt a fly, and they have no record, neither of them, no record. This guy, he's a nurse, like caring for people. Yeah, he's a murderer. It's just mind-blowing. So this month, the subject in Michelle Welsh's case, uh, Gary Hartman, was charged with first-degree murder. This investigation is still going, though. Police are currently using warrants to search his residence and his work, so we have a lot to look forward to. I'm sure they'll strike a plea just to kind of save right. the families. But maybe we'll see a big trial. But I think they have a lot of evidence to look through. And there are a lot of cold cases. So maybe they're going to find some connection. Now, Jenny Bastion's murder, murderer, uh, Robert Washburn, agreed to a plea deal. So he, as part of his plea deal, he had to say he was guilty to first-degree murder. In exchange, there was no, like, rape charge or anything. He gets a 320-month sentence with no death penalty. Now, they said, you're required to tell the court what happened to her. And all he gave was a couple of sentences. He said he grabbed her arm, yanked her into the woods, and strangled her. 
no other detail, no reason why he did it, didn't talk about the rape. And her family clearly doesn't think that's enough. Like they want to know, was it premeditated? Was it spur of the moment? They still hold out hope that he will eventually tell them. So I think everyone's happy he didn't get death penalty. Maybe he's going to be more likely to tell them what happened. And that's kind of fascinating. Like, will there ever be enough information for them? You know, because it's like, no, well, the one how thing, does that her mom, her mom wants to know why did he call in the tip? I think he oh, was yeah. planning it. I think it was premeditated. He's like, oh, this guy just somebody raped someone. I want to do that. I could blame them and I can get away with it. Like planting that he saw. Yeah, like a copycat. Yeah, but... I don't know. But it's in the same park. It is a huge park. So it is hard to find people. But I... two questions. Yeah. Uh, about how old were these guys when it happened? Like back in their in the 20s. 80s. In their 20s. Yeah. And um, so they're 60s and that's the 20s or 30s maybe because i think they're in their 60s now it's been 34 years and then did do either of them i haven't seen their pictures yet do they match anything of what was i mean obviously one of the sketches i think is is pretty close but again he was so young and now they're like white-haired and they were blonde it's interesting wow i don't think those sketches led to anyone like i know that guy but how wild if like with this other guy they start running all this stuff and they get to close a bunch of cases or something. Well, this is what I hope for. So this is great. I'm really glad we've closed these cases. And it is what people are calling like a new type of investigation. Now we're in this whole new world of DNA where you cannot hide as a killer. Like you have nowhere to go because you can't control if your family members upload their DNA to GenMatch or whatever. Anybody can do that. And lo and behold, dad over here is a murderer. You You just don't know. But I'm thinking about all these other cases and really excited to see if they're able to get anything. So because of that, I pulled a few cases that are very similar. Mm. And I'm assuming the cops are looking into this right now. So let's just talk about these a little bit. Yeah. So Carla Wright, 12 years old, she had asked her mother for a ride to school on January 7th, 1980. But mom had a doctor's appointment. So she said, no, walk, get your ass to school. (laughs) So at 8 a.m. that morning, she left for school and took a shortcut to Gray Junior High, but she never showed up to school. She never came home. Her mother reported her missing. They couldn't find her. Twelve days later, her body was found near the trail she had walked, hidden under a piece of plastic, and she had been raped and strangled. Angela Meeker 13, went missing July 7th, 1979. She was on her way to Tacoma Mall to pick up a birthday card for her friend. And the last person to see her was a male acquaintance who said he gave her a ride to the Payless shoe store. And no one has ever seen her since. Shalisa Lewis, 14, stepped off the bus on her way home from school February 2nd, 1996. Three weeks later, her body washed ashore at Seattle's Discovery Park. There were no signs of struggle, and her death was ruled a homicide by drowning. Her final words were left in her diary, and it read, Dear God, I know you have a reason for everything, and it all works out in the long run, but I just don't get it. Whoa, haunting. I know. Andriana Jackson, 10, went missing the morning of December 2nd, 2005, while she walked from her apartment to her school, Tillicom Elementary. She didn't know it, but school had been canceled that day due to weather. The following spring, two boys found her body in a bush less than two miles from her home. So they never found a body. 
Oh, of Angela Meeker? Yeah. Yeah. So she was one that disappeared, but nobody ever turned up. And why this is important is part of the case, part of the whole story that really gives me rotten tummy. I found the most unsettling. I mean, everything is rotten tummy. Oh, yeah. But none the of it's most pleasant. unsettling for me is that guy Rasmussen. And that's because he knew both Carla Wright and Angela Meeker. Really? Yeah. So Carla Wright's the 12 year old who her mom wouldn't drive her to school. And then Angela Meeker is the one that went to the mall and nobody has and ever that's, been found. And that's old Rasmataz that everyone knew in the neighborhood. Yeah. So he has connections to them, yet he's never been arrested. I know he's a primary suspect, but I think there's just no evidence linking him. So they haven't moved on him. And he's in prison for life. So I don't know. I just think yeah. it's so it's unsettling. It's because it's like, do we, do we spend resources, people, Proving time, money it. to prove this thing when we don't even and have a body? And it's happened so long ago. But that gives the family closure and then you have, then you know you've got this predator off the streets. Like, that's really tough. It's just, I hate it. I hate it because I think he did it. Well, yeah. I mean, the good news is we are starting to solve cold cold cases. The detectives work really, really hard on these to try to solve them. And even into retirement, we've seen that with the Golden Mm -hmm. State Killer. Like, the people that solve that were on retirement. Mm -hmm. So I I think that's awesome. But I also want to take a moment to just, give props to my favorite, the Center of Missing and Exploited Children. Um, That's something I actually donate to personally. I think they're awesome. I mean, they spend their time doing so much good. In the Bear, is it Bear Creek? Is that what, yeah, Bear Creek podcast. They even referenced that the way they connected two crimes was a caseworker who worked for them. So she noticed, huh, that's a similar area. I looked on a map, saw they were 20 minutes away and was like, I think we should maybe look into this. So, I mean, they work really hard and go above and beyond. So I, you know, consider donating to them. And if you can't donate, what I highly recommend that I spent my weekend doing, which is really depressing, (laughs) is you look at their website, look at the kids, look at the people who are missing, look at their faces, Note where they live. You might have information that will help us locate them, and you don't even know it. I always do that too. You get those um, the coupons, the clipper thing that comes in the mail, even though you're like, "Why am I on this list?" But there's always that picture at the bottom. I always look to just be like, "Is it anywhere near me? Is it anything I might know?" And then I put it in recycling. I think we don't really, you know, maybe I saw a van, maybe I saw a pet van in a park. If I didn't say anything. We wouldn't have had that circumstantial evidence to help block yeah, that guy. Paying up, attention so. to what's around yeah. you for sure. The old see something, say something. It's worth it. So if you do have a tip to report, you can call one eight hundred the lost or go on their website missingkids.com where you can leave a tip. You can also, if there's any child abuse that you're worried about, you can submit it there to be looked into as well. And like we were talking about earlier, the whatever it takes to the stuff that they have to deal with the stuff the things they look at the things they hear and see and deal with on a daily basis like that is not easy work to do there's superheroes like i i can't imagine like it's funny i work with tech people you call them like they're it's just funny to think like a very few subset of them work in the industry that has to look at this stuff and i mean it's just awful but somebody's got to do it somebody's got to put them away so one thing I wanted to ask you. Oh, boy. What are your thoughts on using these public DNA DNA databases? I get torn because on one hand, I feel like, you know, part, part of my brain's like, I'm not submitting that because the government doesn't need to know all my stuff. But and even if you don't, your family, right. you have no control right. over all of your DNA on so it. So I think it's, 
awesome that it's being used in this good way. But with any type of technology like that, it's like, what are the limits and what are the parameters and who gets access? Like, how soon are we in Minority Report? You I know. know what oh I my mean? gosh, that's what I was thinking of on the way here. So, I mean, the good the good thing that I don't think everybody knows is police can't just go to any of those websites and look at that. Yeah, there's stuff. just the one. They have one Jed Match, right. which is you are uploading your report to it and For giving that consent, reason. right? Yeah. So, it, hey guys, if you want to help solve these things, you can take your report and load it to Jed Match and yeah, be you part can of that. finally put that creepy uncle of yours yeah, away. It's like, do you want them in your family anyway? Get rid of them. Come on. <laughs> Imagine I'm... how much nicer Thanksgiving will be. <laughs> no, seriously. But I mean, the argument is, yes, this is great for crimes that have already happened and narrow it down. The worry is we're going to start using it to try to locate people before they do it. Like minority report. I thought that's like, oh, you have a tendency for psychological disorders. Put them on our list. Yeah. You know, well, and the other concern, too, is crime scenes are not always perfect and things yeah, get mixed up, up and it's yeah. like. So, you know, if you're taking DNA from a scene, you know, obviously there are times where it's where you take the DNA from. It's pretty obvious that that person was at the scene. But there are times where there are items around the person and they're like, oh, look, we found this hair hair clip Mm -hmm. or we found this garbage. You know, we talked about that Green River Killer episode where it's like he would put other things there. there, And it's like, oh, if you you found some gum in the hair of this victim because I happened to toss my gum out the window and didn't know there was a body there and now you're doing all this match and then next thing you know you have a warrant for my arrest based on all this stuff which is factual but mixed up like that's something in my head of just like but that's not as that's not gonna be enough to put you in jail like they use it as a map to get to someone and then they do the testing to really get them you know right but I'm that's all I'm saying though is that there are times that DNA gets or it gets mixed up going to the evidence locker or yeah things I think like for that. The most it's, part, it's you know pretty good and reliable these days. But I totally know what you mean. I I'm just such an advocate for getting these creeps off the street. That if you're like, okay, this is his brother. Now I found him. I'm going to test the DNA. We're gonna look for evidence and link him and treat him like a suspect. It's not like, oh, now I have it. You're going to jail. Yeah. Yeah. So I think as long as we keep in mind that you still have to go through the process you would normally go to is just getting them there faster. But also, this is really helpful for victims. You know, like I said, you don't know who your parents are. You found in the desert. They can look you up and within now 10 minutes find an ant in their database. It's crazy. It's so No, there's definitely good. But, you know, with every good thing comes not good things. Of course. Well, we won't, hopefully won't live that long to have to see that. <laughs> Just see them get put away. <laughs> We're live. We're Coming live at you live from, from Vancouver, Vancouver, Washington. Washington. Wow. <laughs> 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 Whoa. <laughs> hey, We're looking for a caller 10. We're going to call you and pretend it's second date update. I love that segment. Me too. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people just think babies are cute. Whether Whatever they look like, they're baby. And they're so they're drawn to that. Nothing. Chloe, I mean, I get people who tell me Chloe's I'm doing Chloe. a disservice by not having another. I went to the bank and the guy's like, is this your only child? And I said... 
yeah. And he's like, you should really think about having more. She's beautiful. And I was like, that's really sweet. But that's also like. That is one of rude. the creepiest things yeah. I have ever heard. Like, it just so happens I have some jizz in my balls for you. Bespectacled, I said. Oh, I'm sorry. She did say Is that what it, but you're supposed to say bespectacled? Glasses? Are we talking freckles? <laughs> I am talking okay. glasses. Okay. Uh, my understanding, it's bespookled. I didn't know. <laughs> you're talking about someone that was startled, right? Bespookled? <laughs> bespookled. I like that. Is uh, she okay? Yeah, she'll be fine. I messed up. I think I made her real mad. <laughs> no, she's scared. just frustrated with herself. Yeah. It's fine. This is fun because we can whisper talk about her. She doesn't know that we're talking about her. All right. So I... Oh, no. About 10 a.m. in March 1986, Michelle took her two younger sisters to Puget Park to play prior to their piano lesson, which took place just across the street. I laughed. Well, I laughed at two things. One is that one of your sentences had like eight a thousand P. It, it, it had a lot of P's. I know. I was actually thinking that is a Puget Park play prior to their piano lesson. I don't know why I'm not reading it. Okay. Just remember, we can hear you when you smile. <laughs> go piss in the parking lot and come see us after you patronize the plaid pantry and go to the public park <laughs> with your Pringles. Ooh, I'm hungry. Okay. Oh, that's some? the problem. Yeah, go fucking something? eat something. There's no, no. There's no. There's no. <laughs> There's no. Mmm. <laughs> I did that with a friend of mine once when I was like 13 or 14. We just like sat in front of the fridge with it open and like we, one of us was blindfolded at a time and we just take something out of the fridge and feed Don't it to feed them it. and they would try oh to guess God, what it so was. Oh my God, that's so great. <laughs> it was really fun. No, I was like in a group of friends talking, but I was kind of, I think my arms were crossed, but it was like the way my feet were perpendicular with my knee like kicked out. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, why would I get in trouble for that? That's though? nuts. I know it was so weird. I was just like standing with my friends talking. And to this day, it makes me mad. I like I remember that is upsetting. Mackenzie Copeland and her mother. You hear that, Mackenzie? You little twat. Whatever. You made out yeah. with John Sayer, and he told everyone how your mouth tasted. <gasps> you'd be you'd be proud of me. I got trouble once in my life in school. Well, besides like not passing classes on recess because I accidentally choked a classmate with a jump rope. I am so proud of you. Thank you. I didn't know anyone was on my level. Yeah. I actually broke someone's arm. So <laughs> we were not allowed to play this game where you use a jump rope to... Strangle each other. No, not strangle. <laughs> too many writs. Oh, God. I chewed them too many. Now I can't talk. I chewed them too many. <laughs> I chewed these too many. I was supposed to chew 18 times. And, and I, I chewed, chewed 24, 24 times. I was going to chew 24. We both said 24. Oh, my God. Her plan was to ride the 30 blocks from her house to Point Defiance Park, where then she could do the five-mile drive, a popular paved path that looped through the park. <laughs> I like that we're just scared to say anything. <laughs> we're, letting, wait, wait, yeah. we're like that whole sentence just... <laughs> like, let's, see, let's see what she says, and then we'll laugh. Maybe. So yeah. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. 
We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 